Greetings, Hope Church, and happy Palm Sunday. I want to welcome you. Thank you for worshiping with us. I want to plug, as I have several weeks now, that if you're able and, and, and uh, willing to come back and join us in the gathered church, I want to encourage you to do that. This is the beginning of Holy Week, which means we've got a Good Friday service and Easter next weekend. So just be aware of that. Those are wonderful things to come and gather with your church body uh, for, so consider that. The church has long celebrated sacred days. We, we, do this, we, we, we do this in our families. We celebrate anniversaries. We celebrate birthdays, even, even kind of sacred events in regard to our own family history. We do this in our country. All countries do this. They celebrate their origins or key moments that were uh, decisive for their identity or their even security. And we celebrate those things. We remember the good as countries. We remember the bad, the loss, the suffering, things that define who we are. Brothers and sisters, the church does the same thing, and it's, it's rightly done in the church. There are several sacred days, holy days, or holidays that we celebrate, and we are in the middle of what's called the church calendar, which is a wonderful tool to remind us of the gospel story, starting with Advent, the coming, the preparation, all the Old Testament longing for the Messiah, uh, magnified at Christmas, the incarnation, and now moving to what's called Holy Week, which includes from Sunday to Sunday, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and of course, Easter Sunday, the, the death and the resurrection. This, this, could, this is clearly the most sacred week in the Christian faith. Uh, other traditions even celebrate other things, whether it's a Ash Wednesday or a Monday Thursday, things that some of you may be familiar with. We at Hope Church focus on some of these big ones of Palm and Easter and Good Friday as significant to forming our identity, reminding us of the story, something old and young can participate in. So I just wanted to let, set that for you, that we're acknowledging Palm Sunday today. Our, our, our sermon won't divert from the expository focus in 1 Timothy 3 that we've been in. We're going to stay with that. But we just want to acknowledge that in this sacred time, 2,000 years ago, Jesus entered into Jerusalem, that triumphal entry, when the crowd misunderstood the purpose for which he came. So even this week, we should be preparing our hearts and our minds, reading through those stories in the gospel, preparing for next weekend, as on Friday we celebrate and remember in a somber service his death. And then on Sunday, we remember yet celebrate his, his new life and the life that we've received. I hope you can participate with us in person soon. We miss you, those of you who've been afar. We long to gather with you again soon, but we're glad you're worshiping with us here online. Let me pray as we transition into our sermon this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Hope you have the notes printed out or just the text open uh, in your Bibles as we look to and through God's Word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for ministering to us in these sacred holy days. Father, even as we celebrate anniversaries of a, of a, of a marriage and a family or anniversaries of a country, we demarcate sacred days where you worked your eternal work of entering into Jerusalem, dying on the cross for our sins, and resurrecting on the third day. We, we want to focus on that reality. We want those to be defining who we are and our history as an embassy of your kingdom that, that literally this week, 2,000 years ago, was breaking forth through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that at Hope Church we would pause this week, be reflective on this truth, 
the sacredness of Palm Sunday. Thank you, Father, that Jesus not only came to this world, but entered in Jerusalem unto this day. Thank you that he was willing to give up his life, suffer his death, so that we could have life in his name. Father, as we turn to 1 Timothy 3, a a beautiful text that, that exalts Christ fittingly on Palm Sunday, help us to learn and grow and see what it teaches us about you and your word and this world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. A transition happens in verse 14 in 1 Timothy 3. You can see the language when the Apostle Paul, in the middle of this book, writes to Timothy and says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that. Just that first verse right there, that that language Paul uses regularly. He regularly in his other letters. Remember, Paul wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books. Regularly, he uses that little phrase, the reason I write, or these things, as a transition to something different. He, he here is concluding a lengthy section where he's talked about the mechanics of the church, how it works. We spent the last three weeks looking at the offices of the church, the office of pastor, elder, and the office of deacon, which really covers the full gamut of all ministry activity in a local church. And it's beautiful, and it's God-designed, and Paul knows that, and he wants us to know that. He's teaching us these things, he says, because he may not be able to come soon. And he even says at the beginning of verse 15, if I delay, I want you to know this. In a sense, Paul is pausing here, reflecting on his instructions about the church, and then he wants to just make a couple statements about how beautiful the church is. You ever been on a hike or a walk? You've gotten to a place in the midst of hiking through all these trees where there was like an opening that kind of spanned the view, where you get to see the beauty of God's creation. We went camping not long ago as a family. We were going through this dense, mosquito-filled forest. The kids and I and, and, and some of my wife's family was with us, and we were walking, and it was, it, we were completely shaded from the sun because of these massive trees in this northern Minnesota woods. And then we came out on this ledge where there were no trees. There's this beautiful stone spot. Several other people were sitting there having lunch or just checking out the view. And it was breathtaking. Like you just looked at the edge of this, at this top of this almost a small mountain or a large hill. And there was just this valley full of trees. And, and all of us, even the youngest kid, just kind of paused and looked and was like, wow, look how beautiful that is. We've been in the midst of all the details of these trees and voiding this little stick or stepping over this little rock. And then within a few minutes later, we saw the expanse of this beautiful terrain. That's exactly what this passage is. Paul stops. He pulls back from details about qualifications and the nature of particular offices or functions in the church, going all the way back into chapter 2. And he looks over this, the, the, the beautiful thing that God created called the local church, and he describes it with some of the most rich and beautiful language in the whole Bible. And then he ends, verse 16, with this creedal statement that ultimately says that all of this is because of Christ. What a beautiful thing to cover in his providence on Palm Sunday. So, so I want to flesh that out for you in three statements that summarize the, the, the application and the meaning of these verses. The first is this, and it stems from 
the beginning of specifically of verse 15. How a Christian thinks and acts toward the church is important to God. Like you do, we need to hear that. How you think about the church and how you act toward the church is important to God. And it's right here in the text. Paul says in 14 that he's wanting Timothy and obviously his church and in God's providence, our church, to know some things, which is why he writes. And then he says this early in 15, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the house of God. That you may know, know how you ought to behave in the house of God. Now, now be careful with that word behave, because I think we can hear that almost as some kind of moralistic obedience kind of statement. But I don't think that's exactly what Paul's trying to say. Behave here is less about morals or proper procedure and more about thinking and acting. The same Greek word is used elsewhere for, for properly understanding what we're talking about and engaging with it based upon what it is. The serious intention given to how the church works, in Paul's mind, is directly connected to what the church is. Like you just got to know what the church is. I remember I sat down with my father-in-law when, when I was dating his daughter. And I mean, I, w I wasn't raised in, in, in and around a, a marriage. I, I didn't see a father interact with a mother. I hadn't seen those things. I, and I had this growing affection for this man's daughter, and we'd gotten more and more serious. This was... This was uh, may have been after we'd already been engaged, but it was, it was early on in our relationship enough, but we were serious enough that this was a conversation I could have. And I sat across from my father-in-law in his living room when no one else was around, and I literally said, I hope you don't mind me asking you this, but I'm just kind of wondering, what is the best way for me to love your daughter? And immediately he, just, he, got, he got tears in his eyes, he kind of he broke down a little bit, and he said, the very fact that you're asking that question means you're on the right track. And he began to talk to me about how learning to be in a relationship. He was giving me advice. Here's this man who's soon to give his daughter away to marriage, but also a man who was a pastor in a local church who had done weddings and marriage counseling. And he had, he had, he had years of wisdom and experience to share with me. But he was thankful that I was at least asking the right question. I was seeing what was important. I loved this woman and that would be the foundation for treating her rightly. I would have a lot to learn. And he said, we, she and I would learn this together. We would make mistakes. But just to see the sacredness of who she was and even the, the nature of marriage was half of it. I, 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 that's what Paul's trying to say here. I, I want you to see how beautiful the church is. And when you see how beautiful it is, then you begin to already know how rightly to treat it, to think about it, to engage with it. So don't think just to hear the word behave and think morals or rules. Think that I want to know what the church is. I want to engage with it as it truly is. Father, help us to see the church that way. That's what Paul is teaching us here. He describes the church as the household of God. Such beautiful imagery comes from that. Again, think of a family. And this is, this is not just this principle. These are, these are reflecting what practices should happen here. The church is a family. We are adopted sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, who are children of God the Father, given only through the work, the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ, which we celebrate this very week. 
who now have been filled with the Holy Spirit and become a dwelling of God in a real tangible sense. There's that household of God language. The church is this. You want to treat his house and his children properly. Again, don't just think rules. Think rights. The blessing of being God's family. And then Paul adds this in the middle of 15. So that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, comma, which is the church of the living God. Note the phrase living God. Why say that? God is not dead. This isn't some dry religion of some sort, like maybe Paul experiences his day or some kind of ritualistic view might seem to us today. This is the living God. Maybe I could just tell you the story from the beginning of creation, just summarizing really the whole story of the Bible in just a couple minutes. God has always intended to dwell with his people. You understand that? He had always intended to dwell. He made creation to be his temple. He was literally going to dwell with his people. He created this beautiful, good place, not to one day destroy it, but to redeem it and to make it a place that he would dwell with us. If you want proof of that, let me take you to the very back of the Bible, Revelation 21. Let me read these. Just, just listen with me. I mean, you can turn there if you want, but otherwise, let me just read these verses to you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Again, that's language of redemption. The creation had been healed. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Do you hear this language? This is God coming to us. I think we have this image of escape, of removal, whether that's from left behind series stories of, of, of kind of raptured away or Dante's imagery from medieval times of heaven above and earth here. Listen to this story. God made the world so that he would come down and dwell with us. This would be his home, part of his domain, prepared for us as a bride adorned for her husband. God literally prepared all of creation, all of his people, to dwell with us. Verse 3 in verse, Revelation 21, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now that is returning. That is fulfilling. That is making real what God intended to do in the very first garden, the Garden of Eden, the beginning of the biblical story. The language, of course, that follows in the next verse is one you may have heard in funeral ceremonies, but listen to this. This is, this is the image of redemption that all of us need to know is coming. All Christians need to hear this. Revelation 21.4, after, after declaring himself fully present with his people in the redeemed creation, the new creation, the apostle John teaches us this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's the story. That's the language of living God, dwelling with his people. The church is the start of this. It's the inauguration. That's a good word that Christian theologians like to use, that the inauguration, it's begun. The, the consummation is when it ends. But the inauguration has begun. The church is the beginning of this. The church is the down payment. The church is the beginning of the end. That's why throughout the New Testament, it, you see in light of this that the apostles will say, it, in, in the last days, we're in the last days. These are the end times because it's begun. It's the already but not yet. Just again, important terminology to know that because of this sacred holy week, it's already started. It's just not fully here yet. Death is still here, but it's been defeated. Crying is still happening, but it will soon go away. It's already but not yet. It's inaugurated. God is living with his people in a unique way in the church. Just not all creation yet has been restored and renewed. God's holiness has yet to manifest itself fully, but it's been revealed in us. The church, then, is a sacred gathering, the place where God's presence is most centered. That's right. I think it's wrong to say that. God is obviously not limited by any place or any space, but there is a, an experience or a presence of God that is most keenly felt in the gathering of God's people. This is through the word, through the sacraments or ordinances that we celebrate regularly, and through the ministerial care and authority of a local church, of the body being a family. Even just the spirit-indwelled life of the children of God. I was talking to somebody this week who was comparing their situation with somebody else, and you know what the tangible difference was? Is these, this, this brother has the spirit of God. That even dealing with the same difficulty, the Spirit of God gave him a sense of fortitude, endurance, patience, and trust that this other person did not have. There is a uniqueness in every local church, every gospel-centered, believing church that is real and true because it is the household of the living God. What does this say? The, point, the first point was how a Christian thinks and acts toward the church is important to God. So, so how is it important to you? If you are not regularly gathering with the church or you are not taking church seriously, here's the thing. At best, you simply are misunderstanding one of the most important parts of Christianity. You're just misunderstanding it. So that'd be naivete. At worst, you're sinning. That'd be negligence. Brothers and sisters, see the importance of the church that Jesus Christ established, that the gates of hell shall not stand against it and respond accordingly. That's all what verse 15 is saying. At the end of verse 15, that very last phrase, household of God, the church of living God, one more qualification is given, a, a pillar and a, and a buttress of the truth. That word buttress is foreign to us. So I say it this way. The church is a pillar and protector of the gospel. 
In the pastoral letters, the word truth is used as a synonym for the gospel. What is the gospel? Why do we speak about it so regularly here in the church? The gospel is the overall message of the Bible, which is centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is what you believe, that I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and he's done what he's said he's done for me. I believe that by faith. I receive the grace that he gives me by faith. That's the gospel. That's the truth, the core. It's right that we speak of it regularly. Then Paul gives these two images of the church that explain its role in the ministry of the gospel. Do you see, see how he's saying? Here is how this truth, the gospel, is ministered through the church. And interestingly, the text does not say that the church is the pillar and the buttress or protector. It says A. It's an indefinite article. The church is only one part of defending the gospel. God is not dependent on the church, even if he makes it a primary means through which he works in the world. But there's no way we should speak of the church that, that confines God as if God didn't have the church. He couldn't accomplish what he's going to accomplish. He accomplishes what he accomplishes because he's God. Yet in his perfect providence and sovereign rule, he uses for its good and his glory other means, and the church is a primary one in the world. What would be other supports, other ministries that, that are pillars or protectors? Well, Scripture would be one, but certainly we just simply say God himself. The Gospel of John describes how the Holy Spirit ministers and, and convicts, draws people to, himself, to, to, the, to the Father through the Son. There's numerous other supports, but the church is a big one. And here, brothers and sisters, where we may disagree with our Catholic brothers and sisters, a big distinction between Roman Catholics and Protestants is that the church is not the gospel. It serves the gospel. The church doesn't save you. It ministers to you. Christ saves you. That's why I'm not a priest. I'm a pastor. I'm a shepherd, an under-shepherd of Christ, who is the high priest, the only priest. He mediates. I don't mediate. That's a distinction that even with dear brothers and sisters in the Catholic faith that we would disagree because it is the church is a pillar, not the. The church is a buttress or protector, not the. So what do these two terms mean? A pillar is a, an image, a metaphor, expressing the load-bearing role of the church in the ministry of the gospel. In God's plan, the church has a significant role in making God known in the world. Now again, we say world, but think parish. Think our community. God has assigned Hope Evangelical Free Church, along with other sister churches, to make God known to bear that burden. Think of it like a, like a worker in the field, a farmer or a construction worker. The church has an, its assignment. It works the harvest. This is the field in which we harvest. We get our hands dirty, our brows sweaty. We engage in our community, our parish. We proclaim the truth of the gospel. We make it known. We Declare the gospel here, you listening now, me ministering to you at the, the authority and the expectation of the brothers and sisters in this congregation. This is how we serve as a pillar, a pillar. The second image is buttress. Again, it, that word could mean foundation. 
It could even mean protector. It's a, it's a metaphor expressing the protective role of the church in the ministry of the gospel. In God's plan, the church has a significant role in explaining the gospel in the world. So if pillar means that it makes the gospel known, protector means it explains the gospel. The church is based on truth. And all distortions and denials need to be corrected and adjusted by the truth. Brothers and sisters, can you not see how the church is essential for ministry and the life of every Christian? This is what, for me personally, this is for everybody, and I, I believe this is partly God's own will and his, his moving in me, leading me. But this is what, what motivated me to leave a wonderful job I had teaching regularly with seminary and college students in California and come to a local church back in my own hometown because I, I, I aligned with the mission of the local church. I saw it as essential. Seminaries and colleges will pass away, but the church will never fail, will never fall. And I believe that, but I don't believe that just for me and my personal vocation and assignment here at this congregation. I believe that for every Christian. The church is essential for ministry. It's, it's the primary means through which God works in the world. The church is essential for every Christian. The life of every Christian should be grounded in the household of the living God, garnered in this truth that is both explained and announced and defended by the church, which is a pillar and a protector. You can hear that in the midst of this season of COVID where church has become something that can simply be done online. Church has been something with which we can just pull away or disengage. No, no. Let Paul's words direct us rightly to the gathering of the living God in the local church. Last thing, verse 16 ends our text this morning. He, Paul ends with a hymn that celebrates the true pinnacle of the church, Jesus Christ, the core, the capstone. It's Jesus that is the reason we, the church, take our ministry seriously and the gospel seriously is this great mystery that's now been revealed and at work in us, and it's Jesus. Like, all of this is to say that the, the core of the truth, the message of the gospel, the thing to which we praise and point, and the thing sustaining us in this midst is Jesus Christ. And Paul gives what is almost certainly just an early Christian creed, now canonized in our word. These six phrases. Notice Paul even used language of confess. It is good and right for Christians to have confessions in the sense of creedal statements that summarize the truth of the gospel, the biblical story. And if you look at these six phrases, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. If you look at those, each of those six summarize the truths about Christ. In fact, I think the best way to see it is that the first three talk about what has been revealed. Manifest is that first word. And the second three talk about what's now being been proclaimed. Again, there's the first word of the second three. In fact, if you look at them, you could even break it down this way. The first phrase deals with the incarnation, manifested in the flesh. 
The second phrase deals with the death and resurrection of Jesus, vindicated by the Spirit. And the third deals with the ascension seen by the angels. That recounts the story of Christ. And unsurprisingly, all three of those are sacred holy days in the church, demarcating our identity in Christ. The next three, the last of the two, what is proclaimed, the first is preaching, proclaimed among the nations. The second is believing, believed on in the world. And the third is reigning, that Christ, because of the ascension, now sits at the right hand of God the Father in glory. The point? The gospel is about Christ. The church is about Christ. The end of Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. For from him and through him and to him are all things. That is what Paul says. He, he stops, like, like my family, right there in the northern woods of Minnesota, a couple hundred feet up over this valley of a forest. We see the whole thing. Paul says, look at the church. It's the household of the living God. It's a pillar and protector of the gospel that's now been made clear to you. Hold fast. Respond. Because the life and ministry of the church is centered upon Christ. How can we even understand verse 16? A couple thoughts. One would be, look at the value of creeds and confessions. I think there's one thing that our tradition can grow in. We've, we've used things like the New City Catechism has a credo-confessional role. We, we've taken a, we had a class here now almost six years ago on the London Baptist Confession, but I quote it regularly. Like the church has long used standard creeds and confessions to remind us and teach us. This text is biblical proof text for that but also just to focus on Christ, the gospel, the centrality of the church. Do you hear that in this text? So when we invite you to be present with the people of God, when we glorify Christ in all that we do, when we speak about being gospel-centered and gospel-driven in our ministries and our life together, please hear this is exactly what on this hilltop Paul is trying to say from this text. Brothers and sisters, Hope Church is the church of the living God. Live that way. Minister that way. Believe that way. Think and act accordingly. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we are overwhelmed when we think about that this text is describing what you planned for us and provided for us by your grace. Thank you so much for Jesus. Help us to cherish him more and more. May your spirit just help us resonate with these three verses this morning. Palm Sunday, this very week of Holy Week when you initiated the beginning of the new creation you would do for us that we even now this day celebrate. Father, I pray that our church family, maybe even those especially listening who have not yet come back, would feel a level of responsibility, burden, even spirit-led conviction to return to the family of God. Help them do that, not just because of some social pressure from a pastor. Help them do that because they know what the church is and they want to respond, or in Paul's word in the ESV here, behave accordingly. 
This is your house. And they may need to come home. Father, we love you and we thank you for your goodness to us. Protect our people. Help them as they minister in this world. Uh, We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.